The sports world has been greening itself for most of the century, but despite these efforts, most fans have no idea. That changes now. Welcome to Green Sports Pod. Hosted by Lou Blaustein, Green Sports Pod highlights the successes, challenges, and opportunities to green the games we love to watch and play, and give you the chance to hear from the athletes who are taking positive environmental actions. Learn more and subscribe to the show today at greensportsblog.com. Hi there, I'm Lou Blaustein, your host for Green Sports Pod. And with the college football season underway and really getting into high swing this weekend, we couldn't think of a better person to talk about college football, college sports more broadly, and the collision course it seems to be on with sustainability than Dave Newport, one of the true founding fathers of the green sports movement and also the director of the Environmental Center at CU Boulder, that is the University of Colorado Boulder. Dave, welcome to Green Sports Pod. Thanks, Lou. Happy to be here. Not much has really happened in college sports this spring and summer, right? Uh, It's been really quiet. I mean, except for Prime talking a lot out in Boulder. No, nothing at all. I think these days, everybody is probably just used to the idea of rapid change. And so now we take rapid change for granted. And I think that's what we've had this year. You ain't kidding, Dave, when you talk about rapid change in college sports, especially when it comes to the leagues themselves, which has been dominated for about a century by, and the charm of college sports, regional rivalries and leagues that were based geographically. For example, like the Pac-12 where Colorado is this year, but next year you're leaving the Pac-12. That is a West Coast and Rocky Mountain State League. And the Big Ten was a Midwest-centric league, Ohio State and Michigan. Now it's coast to coast, from Rutgers in New Jersey to Maryland and Maryland and USC and UCLA and Los Angeles. And with Tremendous increases in carbon emissions and not to mention, what does this mean for the student athletes? And what I want to know is, how does this impact a sustainability person at a Colorado or at the other Pac-12 schools, especially since the Pac-12 led on greening in college sports over a decade? Before you get into that, maybe you could also share how you got into this world in the first place, starting at the University of Florida. First of all, I would posit the paradigm, if you will, as sustainability versus money, or money versus sustainability. Basically, it comes down to those three words, sustainability versus money. And that, frankly, has been the paradigm of sustainability from day one. And making the business case, I told somebody the other day, making the business case for sustainability, while I swore that I really never ever wanted to do that again, I'm glad that I had a lot of practice because it always comes in handy. And when you run through the business case of sustainability, it makes sense and you can open doors. But to answer your question, I was proud and privileged to be the first sustainability director at the University of Florida. I was working there from 1999 uh, until 2006. Winning some basketball national championships and did pretty well in football. Well, you know, they did all that right after I left. It really ticked me off. I mean, <laughs> so yeah, 06, 07, 08. Yeah, we did, had a pretty good run through there. A couple of 
national championships in football and basketball. It's like, whoa. But at any rate, we did also host in 2002 uh, what I assume to be, I've never heard any arguments or known of any other instances, the first zero ways sustainable football game in the United States, collegiate football game in the United States. And that was a real eye-opener. This little tiny stadium called Florida Field, we tried to sort out the 150,000 people between who's inside and outside the game. There's as many people outside the game as there are inside the game there. For those of you who are not in the United States and you're listening to this, that's called tailgating. And people hang out in the parking lots. If there's 75,000 people in the stadium in Gainesville, Florida, there well could be 75,000 people hanging out outside the stadium. For about a mile in every direction, there's a perimeter. So inside that mile circumference around uh, radius around the stadium, it's pretty packed. So our goals, obviously, the first game were modest. We just wanted to do this new thing called Zero Waste. It was 2002. The PLA plastics and compostable packaging and so forth were new to market. So we had compostable plastic cups for beer and soda and so forth. And of course, we used paper plates and all that. So it was not a huge change. You would think it was. Athletic director Jeremy Foley, who was the AD in the prestigious Southeast Conference, it's prestigious if you love college football, longer than any other AD ever, and won a few national titles and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, he was cautious and did his homework. And then he and I walked around in the skyboxes during the game and just talked to the fans about sustainability, went table to table. Hey, how are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. How do you like this? And they all loved it. We got about 500 comments. The only bad comment we got was from one particularly grumpy old Gator alum who said, man, man, this is is good. Uh, How come we haven't been doing this right along? (laughs) So that was the worst comment we ever got. It was, yeah, we should have invented this before it was invented. So the rest was easy after that. Once they saw there was no downside risk and people liked it. And we got a sponsor. That was also the first sponsorship. We had a corporate patron. And that's where the math for me fell together. We had a corporate patron who wanted to build a sustainable gas station in the community next to the university selling biodiesel. And he wanted to build a lead gold gas station, which I think might have been the first one in America, and was having trouble getting it permitted and so forth and so on. Anyway, all that changed after the game because everybody now loved this vendor. And that sustainable gas station is here to this day, all lead gold and everything. So off to a great start. From there, yeah, moved on to the University of Colorado. Which is a much greener area, at least by reputation and probably by actuality, than, let's say, if you think of the state of Florida, Beyonce, Gainesville. So now you're going to essentially Shangri-La of green in a way. Right. From the Shangri-La of football, because there is nothing as important as football in the Southeast Conference. Nothing. Amen. Yes, it's the Center of uh, Sustainability, uh, University of Colorado, the center that I am proud to be the director of, is the oldest, largest, and most accomplished collegiate sustainability center in the United States. Founded on Earth Day of 1970, the very first Earth Day, two years before the EPA even existed. The students at the University of Colorado decided they wanted to do this new thing that nobody ever thought of called recycling. Launched the first recycling program on a college campus in the United States. And we've gone on to do pretty much everything else at CU Boulder ever since then. So it's been a wonderful run. And two big parts of that are Ralphie's Green Stampede, which is a green sponsorship platform, and then 
your involvement in leading Pac-12 Green. So talk first about Ralphie, and then we'll talk a little bit about Pac-12 on the other side. Ralphie's Green Stampede was actually the brilliance or creativity of our athletic director and his marketing staff at the time when I got to Colorado. I didn't name him. He did, or his staff did. Not sure exactly who came up with that idea. So Mike Bowen was the AD when I got there, and I went to see him and proposed that we start doing what I was doing in Florida, start doing that in Boulder. He immediately agreed, told me the most important thing I've ever learned in collegiate sustainability, because it took him about 30 seconds to say yes to what I asked him. And so I asked him again, I said, well, gee, that was the quickest sell I ever landed. How come you think this is going to work? Why'd you make say yes so fast? And he said, quote, Dave, what you don't understand is people don't come here for football on Saturday. They come here for community. And sustainability is all about community. And boy, was he right. <laughs> I said to Mike, I thought you were just a dumb jock. <laughs> well, it turns out all ADs know that. That's exactly what's being sold. That's exactly why people love college football is you get together they're in the same place with the same fans, sing the same songs, wear the same jerseys, see the same buildings, harken back to their college days, so forth. Tell the same stories. All the same stuff. I've been there. Yeah, we're all there. I'm a Syracuse grad. Go Orange. Are you? Anyway, we built on that, and the rest is history in terms of Ralphie's Green Stampede. Inventing that as a discrete marketing identity he then landed White Wave Foods, aka now Danone, as our chief sponsor going forward. So Mike immediately sold it. So back to the business case, he made it. And Ralphie, by the way, for those who aren't deep into CU Boulder athletics, Ralphie is the Colorado Buffalo, the name of the Colorado Buffalo. That's correct. And so Ralphie's Green Stampede is, the way I view it, a green sponsorship platform within Colorado athletics. That's correct. Ralphie, by the way, is also female. So just to throw you all off a little bit more there. And of course, Buffalo are not really Buffalo, they're bison, but we won't get into the science. Yeah. We're all buffs. That's right. <laughs> so then you started Ralphie's Green Stampede, and then you're looking at Colorado. And this may be confusing as we go through this, but track with me. They used to be in the Big 12. Then probably around the time you got there, they moved into the Pac-12, and the Pac-12 are schools mainly on the West Coast, iconic brands and schools in terms of college sports, USC, UCLA, Cal, Stanford, University of Oregon, Washington, and Oregon State, Washington State, Arizona, Arizona State. And then they move a little eastward or a bit eastward to get University of Utah and Colorado, but it's still a Western conference. And then the Pac-12 became, to my mind, the leader and the innovator in college sports and sustainability. Talk a little bit about that and also Bill Walton. So that was, I'm going to credit the Green Sports Alliance, of which I was on the board for the uh, genesis of that organization at the time. We went to see Jamie Zaninovich, the deputy commissioner and chief operating officer of the Pac-12 conference in San Francisco in their studios and um, basically pitched him on, hey, you know, we're doing this thing here at Colorado. All the schools, pretty much all the schools in the Pac-12 are by themselves pretty cool on sustainability. They're doing good work. They haven't penetrated their sports side as much as we hoped and want to increase, but 
as universities, they're doing uh, very good jobs. Jamie and his infinite wisdom saw the correct compass heading for college sports and said, yeah, we're going to sign on as a conference to membership in the Green Sports Alliance. And we're going to launch and host the first collegiate conference sports sustainability task force. In other words, all the schools acting together. And so we form Pac-12 Team Green, which is the sustainability person and our athletics counterpart, the AD or whoever he or she says. So two from each campus. So we had a committee of 24 people, plus Jamie and you know, some people to, at the conference. And we started meeting, okay, what can we do as a conference now to improve sports sustainability on the field, in the stadiums, and then the golf courses and tennis courts and soccer fields and so forth. And so we became clearly the leader in uh, collegiate sports sustainability as an organized league. And that was really gratifying work, still is. A lot of progress was made. Progress was made on both in terms of actual greening, i.e. recycling, energy efficient lighting, et cetera, et cetera. And then also communicating it to fans, which many sports organizations, pros, don't do as good a job as you all did and do in the Pac-12. And then also a Pac-12 sustainability conference every year. So I'm really glad you brought that up, Lou, because that is exactly why you do this. When I go talk to my counterparts, you know, other sustainability directors at the nation's universities, they go, well, what are we doing over in sports? This sports is just this wasteful place. It's horrible and blah, blah, blah. And a big pain in the butt. We've got all this great stuff going on on campus. So, well, number one, you don't have a bigger place to market what you're doing than in sports. So get out there and become visible to your alums, to your community members, to your sponsors, and increase the penetration of your sustainability work in a much broader way than just faculty, staff, students, community members on campus. It triples or double, you know, more than triples the amount of tradition. And B, here's the key. And I will credit BASF, the first sponsor after Danone, BASF called us up after like, maybe the first year we were launching in Boulders before the Green Sports Alliance, I'm sorry, before the Pac-12 evolved as a unit and said, hey, we're going to sponsor you. And I'll tell you that story if we get time. But at any rate, BASF's goal, strategic goal for why they wanted to do sports sustainability was to grow the demand for compostables so that people would want to buy materials, clamshells, cups, and all that kind of stuff, and go to a compostable carryout type of world. So they wanted to raise that market demand from the bottom up. BASF by themselves is a B2B, a business to business. They manufacture the polymers, the compostable polymers, and then other companies turn those into products, clamshells, cups, et cetera. They make the things that make things work. They make the things that make things better. And here's the one sentence that has carried through all the work is a sentence that came from BASF. We want to use the power of sports to influence fans to be more sustainable at home, work, and play, not just on game day. So that's key. So that's a force multiplier. And that's what's key to sustainability professionals is it's not just a one and done. You get a hot dog and it's a not dog and you get it in tissue paper instead of aluminum foil, whatever. It's using that influencing power of sports, which is tremendous. It is the most potent influencing platform on the planet. Thank you. That's the ball game. That's the ball game. Five billion people watch a World Cup soccer game. 
There's nothing else on this planet that brings together 5 billion. That's what the B people at the same time. And so the unifying and influencing power of sports is just crazy. And I'll credit BASF for it. And we have followed that rigorously and we've seen it work. People, once they see that their school is going green and the school, you know, the sports program asks them to be green, they go, yeah, well, I want to do that because I know I'm going long, but one quick story. Pepsi funded this big, huge study basically to understand what are the emotional buttons that make people want to recycle. And so we studied it. I got an environmental psychiatrist, sorry, psychologist on our faculty, put together a scientific study, had fleets of students out there looking at stuff, doing the data. And basically what it comes down to is the influencing power. We looked at all of the tailgaters. We looked at how much they were recycling, how much they weren't, how much was thrown away, so forth and so on. And come to find out that the people who recycled at home, when they'd come to the stadium and they'd recycle about 50%. People that didn't recycle at home, maybe they thought it was baloney or they didn't have recycling in their community, whatever. They would come to the game and they would do like 70, 75%, more so than the established recyclers. Hmm. And so we asked, why? And the same comment kept coming back. Yeah, we don't do this at home, but when we come here, it's clearly what buffs do. And we want to be part of the team. We want to be on the team. We want to support the buffs. So we heard that again and again in so many different forms, but that basically that's what it came down to is they were influenced by the sports, their collegiate sports identity to make that jump. You don't have that working in sustainability on campus. I don't get that kind of jump. I get different motivators, but you get the point. And again, for people who are not from the U.S., as passionate as we follow pro sports, in the United States. Collegiate sports may be changing now, sad to say, but college sports is a different animal. Like when people talk about American exceptionalism, I say, well, you know what's really exceptional? Collegiate sports. It doesn't exist anywhere. And the affinity that alums and boosters who never went to the school have for their team, I'm not going to say it's more than pro sports fans have for their team, but it's a little different and maybe a bit deeper. It's deeper. Because people are certainly not so about their pro sports affiliations. So you're doing this on the Colorado campus. You bring this to the rest of the Pac-12. You know, and I know just by being part of this that Stanford has done some great things. Arizona State, USC, UCLA, all of them have done one thing or another. And so this is moving forward. And then you have your annual Pac-12 Sports Sustainability Summits every year, going back six or seven years now, I think before the pandemic, for sure. And even the, I mentioned him earlier, the legendary UCLA and NBA basketball star Bill Walton and Hall of Famer, for that matter, and Grateful Deadhead extraordinaire became part of this. And maybe a little bit about him. Bill is an amazing individual who I've had the honor and pleasure of becoming pretty good friends with doing this work over the last 10 years. He is a unique individual. He's brilliant. He's a genius. He is different. He's quirky. He is passionate and he's a winner. Everything he touches turns to gold. And if you look at his life, the challenges he's gone through and so forth, but he is unique. And I swear to God, the moment that I heard last summer, that UCLA and USC had pulled out of the Pac-12 to go to the Big Ten. The very first thing I thought was, oh my God, Bill Walton must be going insane. 
there is no bigger Pac-12 support than Bill Walton supporting the Conference of Champions, which he did thousands of times on the various, you know, he's an announcer on ESPN. Now that he's retired from sports course, first thing I had was this, this huge swell of empathy for, he went to UCLA, won national championships when he played for UCLA, played for the legendary John Wooden for crying out loud. No better college basketball coach ever than John Wooden. Learned his life around the John Wooden school of how you live your life. The pyramid of success. The pyramid of success. John Wooden didn't coach basketball. He didn't. He didn't scout the other team. He didn't draw up plays. He told people how to live. This is how you live. This is a challenge you must face. This is how you face that challenge. He wasn't talking about X's and O's. And Bill would walk around spouting Woodenisms. <laughs> he then went on to ultimately be coached by Bill Russell. So Bill Walton had some of the best coaching ever. I mean, Bill Russell and John Wooden. Whew. And so even now I get worked up just thinking about poor Bill Walton getting abandoned by his beloved Pac-12. And so talk about the end of the Pac-12. That's what comes up for me. That's right. And so this is the perfect segue to where we find ourselves now in this conference musical chair situation that is, as you said at the top of the show, driven by dollars. And even though you have programs like Ralphie's Green Stampede and others that are bringing in some quote-unquote green sponsorship dollars, sadly, that pales in comparison to the dollars that Fox Sports and ESPN are throwing at these conferences and thus the schools who are making now decisions on who they are going to be aligned with based on ratings, eyeballs, and dollars. You know, we can get into the mistakes that the Pac-12 made in terms of their media decisions and all of that. But as Dave just mentioned a minute ago, this whole latest round of conference shifting started a year ago or so when USC and UCLA, two of the glamour, incredibly iconic brands in college football, college basketball, Olympic sports, moved from the Pac-12 to the Big Ten because the dollars were infinitely bigger. And what that meant, and I wrote about it in Green Sports Blog, is that you had a conference, the Big Ten, that was mainly places like Michigan, Ohio State, Wisconsin, etc., now had Maryland and Rutgers on the East Coast and USC and UCLA coming in starting next 2024 on the West Coast. So you're going to be having student athletes traveling from New Jersey to Los Angeles, Maryland to Los Angeles, et cetera, et cetera. And these schools, especially USC and UCLA, part of that Pac-12 green program, talking about how sustainable they are. And now they're saying, oh, no, we're going to start flying our student athletes all over the country. No problem. How did that make you feel personally, your colleagues at USC and UCLA? And how do we even square that? Well, there is no squaring it. And the most discouraging part of that is nowhere in any of the communications or statements about that move by USC and UCLA, and then ultimately now the demise of Pac-12. I've never heard a college president or an athletic director talk about the environmental impacts of this. Never. I can back that up, Dave, because 
I tried to, you know, write a story about this at the time of USC and UCLA leaving. And no one from USC and UCLA, athletics, sustainability, the administrations, no one would talk about it whatsoever. And I can't quote this with any uh, scientific precision because I've not seen the research, but I can tell you that the back of the envelope from friends who are on the inside of this, who shall remain nameless, is that uh, travel emissions for those universities are going to go up six to seven times from what they are now. And that's a lot more carbon. That's just traveling athletes, or does that include fan travel and booster travel? I think it only is accounting for the athletes, so the athletics travel, athletic department-funded travel. Fan travel, I don't think a lot of people track fan travel with precision. Don't have to report that for our AG stars reporting and so forth. We do have to track travel that's paid for by the university, athletics department, and so forth. So that's just one impact. And of course, and there's a zillion others. And so the environmental calculus was not part of that consideration. You know, I can say, honestly, is not surprising. It's very disheartening. But what it means is that we're going to have to try harder. And that sometimes you have to, as a friend of mine who's a psychiatrist says, people don't uh, fundamentally change until they really hit rock bottom. Sometimes you got to go down before you can go up. Maybe this is a place where we'll come to rue this decision in such a profoundly moving way that we'll act more forcefully to remedy it. And I know I'm sounding like Pollyanna here, but I will tell you, obviously with our shift now, Colorado's shift now into the Big 12, which does not have the legacy of environmental and sustainability activism that the Pac-12 does. I know the sustainability directors at many of my Big 12 brethren schools, and they're good people just like all the rest. And they want to do the right thing. So we're going to get together. We're going to launch something in the Pac-12, in the Big 12, you know, try to get back on the horse. Got to get back on the horse. Otherwise, it runs away or you get trampled. <laughs> so what choices have we got? There are none. And I appreciate the candor. You know, I would imagine when USC and UCLA left and that announcement rocked the college sports world, aside from Bill Walton, the great UCLA basketball player, and as you said, the longtime announcer, I got to imagine that the sustainability folks who were working on sports sustainability at USC and UCLA, it must have been a, just a gut punch. Gut punch is, I think, the right word. And with no voice being given on this topic by the administration, by the athletics department, that just shows to me that they're hoping no one notices. Yeah. And sadly, we wrote about it in Green Sports Blog, but you know, major media really didn't cover it. And so now where we are, a year later, with more TV contracts and more money coming into two leagues, mainly Big Ten and the SEC and the Big 12, where Colorado is moving to, getting a decent deal. Now Oregon and Washington, two, again, key Pac-12 schools have gone to the Big Ten again. And now you have Arizona State and Utah joining Colorado in the Big 12. Forget the numbers like Big Ten and Big 12. There aren't 10 Big Ten schools. There are 18. I don't know how many Big 12 schools there are today, to tell you the truth. And it's going to be more student travel. The thing, Dave, that I'm interested in here is football is really driving it. That's where 
the massive amount of money is. And football travel, they only play 12, 13 games a year. Half of them are road games. But what about the student athlete who's on the field hockey team or who's on the track team or who's on the basketball team, men or women? They're playing two, maybe three games in a week. Where do they fit in this calculation? I don't have any answers for that, or at least not any good ones. I mean, I can't project out, and it's not my job to figure all that stuff out. I do try to understand the system, though, I think more than to just it's popular and perhaps warranted to beat up on football as you know the thing that's causing all this. But it's important to remember, as you know, Lou, the football program is the only moneymaker generally in collegiate sports, and it supports all the other sports. And we have 15 collegiate varsity sports at the university, 15, 14 of them are money losers. And the 15th football makes money and supports the other 14. And people don't know that. And so, you know, yes, football is driven to grab the money, but it's not a bunch of greedy, just all about me, all about football. They certainly get their share, but those other programs also benefit from that. And when I think about this, how did that evolve? That, to me, is analogous to the slowly boiling pot of water that the frog's in. We don't notice the water increasing the temperature until it's too late. So Al Gore's famous demonstration on, because back in the day when, you know, collegiate sports were smaller and, you know, more sportsman-driven as opposed to sort of professional goals-driven, sportsmanship was a bigger thing and people were required as in many of the Ivy League schools, you're required to play some kind of a sport because there is a life lesson to playing sports. So that was a different day. That's not the day we live in now. But in transition from that to what we have now, we've slowly upped the ante of how much money is necessary to run all of these things and be competitive. You know, there's a calculus that I think is wrong and that the Knight Commission has actually refuted that says the more you win in football, the more money you bring in for the whole university called the Doug Flutie effect. Even Holy Cross, for people who can remember who Doug Flutie is and where he played, Boston College will note that, as Boston College says, we didn't make money because of Doug Flutie throwing a touchdown and winning an important game. We made it because of the strength of the university. There is a myth behind this that more successful athletics means more money for the university. So if that were true, and it's an easy one to disprove. If that were true, then the University of Alabama would be ballooned with money and Harvard would be a broke, penniless campus. Harvard has been squat in sports. Harvard's done pretty well, though, otherwise, from what I've heard. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. When was the last time you saw him in the national playoff? Zero. Zero. You get the point. And so the money that sports makes goes to sports. It doesn't go to the whole campus. That myth, I think, is one of the things that's propelled university presidents to be so adamant about, you know, winning. And we got to win. We have to have more money so we can win more. The Knight Commission themselves have refuted the Flutie effect myth. The Knight Commission, which is an independent body of presidents and athletic directors, independent. They're not the NCAA. They're an independent body. And they study and publish reports and research on collegiate sports, very respected outfit, been around a long time. They said money raised by the university has nothing to do with the winning percentage of athletics. Nothing. And you really only need to look as far as Harvard and Alabama's won more national titles in football than anybody else. And they don't have 10% of the money that Harvard's got. 
So you get the point. We're not dotting the I's and crossing the T's of the money. We have let money become and prove continuously the golden rule. You know, he with the gold rules. Right. And we've lost sight of what we're really supposed to be doing, which is, you know, improving society through higher education. All of that is true. And I also know that none of us are perfect. There is a lot of rationalizing that goes on. Like I can get angry and really pound my chest about like, this is not right to have USC and UCLA and Oregon and Washington playing in the same league with Penn State, Maryland and Rutgers from a carbon emissions point of view and from a student athlete's health and mental health point of view, and also from a sustainability-minded student-athlete's point of view, that this goes against their values. Then again, I'm a Rutgers grad, and I'm glad that we're in the Big Ten, although I am not happy that the Western schools came in. And so we have to live in this imperfect world and being imperfect advocates. The question is, what should we in the sports sustainability movement, given these gut punches, be advocating for as we come back out of the trough that we got knocked down into going forward so that we are heard, so that we start to make more of a difference given the current realities. This will sound maybe unusual, but I think you fight fire with fire. I believe we should go back to basics of creating sustainability assets in collegiate sports, which we can then market to green brands who align with those goals and want to promote them. And we can bring a lot of money back into sports from green sources by having green attributes. In other words, having renewable energy, having zero waste, having local organic foods, having electric transportation, and so forth. There are hosts of corporate brands out there that would love to support those assets. And we call them assets because you have to have them before you can market them. So you have to implement these sustainability features in your collegiate sports program, and then you can market them. And we've had a lot of success doing that at CU Boulder and remind the collegiate community that there are millions of dollars to be made doing the right thing by promoting and implementing sustainable practices and climate action in your highly visible and marketable sports program, collegiate sports program. That, to me, is the answer. You're not going to change people's minds on money right now. It's just not going to happen. But you can certainly make your own, and we've done that. And I will say that in the last few years, especially with the COVID setback, that set back our fundraising at Boulder considerably because we didn't have anything to raise funds for. And you have to stay after this stuff. But we've brought in numerous corporate brands that have supported us. As I said, BASF ran with us for 10 years. Wells Fargo about the long the same time. Huawei Foods about the same time. And on down the list. I just feel like the calculus of how you can make money by doing the right thing is the answer to the challenge that we face. That it's not just running to TV and running to money, irrespective of the environmental consequences, because when you turn aside the environmental consequences, you're losing money. You're losing that ability to sell that part of your operation that green brands want to associate themselves with. And so that's my answer to this. So I am 
100% behind that answer. I'm also going to add a different spin to it, which is to say this, and you mentioned COVID. Now let's go to the pro sports world. COVID, when everything was shut down during 2020, it's easy to forget that. That seems like so long ago. It really wasn't. Major League Baseball came back first because they were in season right after that spring wave one of COVID. And how did they come back? Because of concerns about travel, health-related concerns, COVID-related concerns about travel, they changed everything. They changed their schedule, basically, to there were no games between New York and Los Angeles. They were the anti-Big Ten expansion without even knowing it. There were no games between Washington and Seattle. The games were all the East Coast teams played the East Coast teams to minimize travel from a health perspective, not from an emissions perspective. Midwestern teams only played the Midwestern teams and the West Coast teams only played the West Coast teams. And then they had playoffs and World Series as usual. The reason I bring this up is that Mother Nature, if we and this is way beyond sports, but if we don't get our act together, this realignment that just happened, I mean, Mother Nature may force us to have those kind of COVID restrictions even without COVID. My point is, I think, and as the founder of Eco Athletes, and we have a 40-ish NCAA student-athletes as our Eco Athletes champions, I think Climate-minded, environmental-minded athletes, student-athletes can start to lead a movement to bring some sanity, emission sanity, to the scheduling. What do I mean by that? So now we have a big 10 that stretches from the East Coast to the West. Well, I think there should be a push, and I'm happy to do what I can in my own little way to push that push, to have pods. The West Coast pod, USC, UCLA, Oregon, and Washington, they play each other the majority of the time. The East Coast pod, the Midwest pod. And then once in a while, you have a game across pods, but rarely. Same thing with the Big 12, the conference you're joining. You know, you've got West Virginia, Cincinnati, Brigham Young, Colorado, all the Texas schools, <laughs> and then University of Central Florida. Your footprint is huge, too. There should be pods as well. Because from an emissions point of view, from an environmental and a climate point of view, and I think there should be a movement to push that. What do you think? I think that that's the other weapon that we have that is potentially as effective as bringing in green brand sponsorships. And that is advocacy from student athletes, which their ability to be advocate and use their status as student athletes now is much freer than it used to be before name, image, and likeness. And Austin case and all that. So, and to your credit, Lou, you have organized a bunch of ego athletes now who are a huge influencers and are very dedicated to all the same things you and I support and need to move forward. And I think those ambassadors it's tough to say that student athletes should be, you know, just dribble and shoot. That whole thing, not, no, no, that's not going to work. Shut up and dribble ain't going to fly. Right, shut up and dribble ain't going to work. With the student athletes that I know, that is not going to fly. That is not going to fly. And likewise, they can pay for it anyway through NIL. 
That's right. The influencing power of sports has increased now because of that. So that's a good part of the last three years of unprecedented change in collegiate sports between name, image, and likeness, the transfer portal, and now the dissociation of the biggest brand sports conference in college sports. The hits just keep on coming through in COVID and we're shut down for two years. College sports has gone through hell, no question about it. But the student athletes have more latitude, more strength, more ability to earn some compensation and speak their minds without having to run afoul or be worried about NCAA regulations of this, that, or the other. And they are doing that. To your credit, you were bringing them forward. We we're seeing some as well, and we need more. They are huge influencers. Yep. And we aim to help them maximize their influence. And I think that's a good place for us to close this conversation because we could go on and on. But even though for the sports sustainability movement, as it relates to college sports, the last year, year and a half, we'll say for the third time, has been a collective gut punch. This is where, as our guest Dave Newport said, this is where we get up and fight. And I'm excited to be a part of that. And I really want to thank you, Dave, for bringing your perspective and your experience and your passion both to your work and to the pod today. Thank you so much for being a part to have this conversation. Well, thank you, Lou. It's an honor to be here. It's an honor to have this conversation with you. You're as much of a champion as anyone I know on this. And sports, both professionally and collegiate sports, sustainability work has been advanced by your advocacy and your presence for years now. So keep going. That's what we do. We keep on keeping on. Thank you to our listeners. We will be back with another episode of Green Sports Pod in the not too distant future. So thank you again for listening to Green Sports Pod. You've been listening to Green Sports Pod, hosted by Lou Blaustein. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And head on over to greensportsblog.com, the source for news and commentary at the intersection of green and sports. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Green Sports Pod.